Rising Star Podcast with your host, Kelly Hughes. On this special edition of Rising Star, we're going to talk to Bree Stoner. She has a brand new single and video out. It is called Loved Me Like a Weapon. It is dreamy. It is introspective, spiritual. We're going to delve into many deep subjects. So sit back and get ready and welcome Bree. Thank you so much for having me. Would you say your music is like almost like a continuum of your podcast? Because it seems like you put some of the same themes into both. <laughs> yeah, well, my podcast, Unknowing, um, is really about what I believe the essential gateway is for uh, transformation and creativity, which is that we have to let go of what we think we know to make room for what could be. Um, and any artist can say, yep, that's pretty much the gateway we have to walk to or walk through every time we sit down to write a song or paint a painting or pen a poem. So yeah, it is very much an intersecting um, exploration that I do both on the podcast and then of course in the, the music that I, that I make and in the art that I paint as well. You know, your music, you know, Love Me Like a Weapon has a bit of a melancholy feel. And so often, you know, dreamy pop or dream rock, there's that, you know, uh, dream aspect. But do you think part of why we like that is, you know, to get to the good side or a better side, we have to go through some sadness and maybe introspection? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I I'm a real big fan of Cohen's line about how the crack is, is how the light gets in, you know? And I, mm -hmm. I feel like heartbreak is our gateway, our portal to presence and possibility. And, you know, we can't really grow unless we break open and expand. And I think that when we're attracted to songs that tug at our hearts in that way, um, it's really because we, I think as human beings are wired for longing, to long for more, to yearn for more, is part of what makes us human. And um, it's it's deeply connected to the creative instinct. So I think it makes sense that we that we resonate with songs that that um, elicit that response in us. It makes me think of like some of the earlier Lana Del Rey. Not, not that your music is just like hers, but her music evoked sort of this nostalgia, even though it was new and then she was, you know, young. It's almost like I think a lot of young people are yearning for a nostalgia that they didn't necessarily live through, but they're mm. looking for some kind of a connection to the past. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. I've I've been compared to Lana since um, my early days making music, so it's a real, you know, I'm not mad at that comparison at all. I think. Um, you know, we have a similarity in, in our vocal delivery that I think harkens to, you know, the, even just the the um, the gravel and grit of like how Nancy Sinatra would sing as well. So there's something about that that I think people um, connect with, particularly in an age when everything has become so disposable and so digital that, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, we live in a world now where like our attention spans are the length of a TikTok video. So um, I think there is a yearning and a longing for the craft of a full song and a full album experience and 
God, if if my voice elicits that on this track, then I'm I'm very happy to hear it. No, I really enjoy your vocal delivery, and I really like the pacing of the song. I, I feel like when I'm listening to it, you're slowing down time, which makes us mm. stop and listen. Mm. Yeah, that's that's cool to hear. I think uh, pacing was really important in the in the process of recording this song and the rest of the songs on the album. Um, it's something that my producer, uh, David Vanderveld, um, and I really pay attention to is the groove and the feel. Um, and again, I think we live in a world where faster, more, bigger, louder seems to <laughs> be the precedent. And so really tuning into what feels good in the body and like what actually feels good when you're playing it behind the kit um, and, and, you know, being just back behind the beat a little bit uh, has always kind of been the style that David and I gravitate towards. So yeah, a lot of that was intentional. Um, and it's kind of funny too, Kelly, because every time I record a demo, I swear to God, it is, I feel like I'm like writing the slowest song ever. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I'll get into the studio with David and he, you know, once we take a listen to it together, he's like, no, actually this, this feels right. This feels good. So he, he's really been um, incredible in affirming that instinct to not necessarily always go faster or rush, um, rush the tempo, but to take our time and to uh, leave that space that can allow for my vocal delivery to really um, scoop and, and bring people into that, you know, moment with me. Well, one thing it makes me think about when you think of dreams in general is time is, is compressed. Like, like mm -hmm. in a dream, something that would ha take, you know, a second to happen in real life might seem like an eternity or something that would take a long time, you know, would just be, you know, within a few seconds. And, and I think mm -hmm. your music kind of disorients you like that in a good mm -hmm. way because that makes you start to look at it from a different angle. Mm, wow, well, yeah, that's that's wonderful to hear. It definitely feels that way for me as as I was, it felt that way as I was working on the record. And in part because I was writing these songs in the midst of the pandemic. And so time really had stood still for so many of us. It felt like there was this giant cultural ellipsis, global ellipsis that was taking place. and. I was grappling with questioning, asking myself, um, you know, what really matters? <laughs> I think many of us during that time were, were reprioritizing our lives and reconsidering what it was that we wanted to do with this brief, mm -hmm. short, beautiful life. And um, so the fact that you, you're picking up on that is really gratifying because each song is really intentionally trying to create a soundscape and bring people into that landscape experience with me, um, like a portal, you know, that you can drop through and drop into another place. Well, especially such a contrast to the EDM dominated music right now, where it's all about staying on that beat. And I think yeah. <laughs> a song that kind of meanders more like, you know, you're like a flowing river going around the rocks and just sort of traveling but not rushing through yeah well you know i mean 
sometimes I wonder, Kelly, if I was like born born at the wrong time or something. <laughs> because because I think a lot of what I'm attracted to musically, a lot of my influences are older, you know. I mean, probably the most current largest influence would be Mazzy Starr. Um but even her approach to songwriting is is very much in that dreamy uh time stopping sort of way that you mentioned. But you know, I I really cut my teeth listening to Fleetwood Mac and Joni Mitchell and Neil Young. And so, you know, and and like, you know, French pop artists from the 60s as well, like and Serge Gainsbourg is probably one of the largest influences on this record as well. But their capacity and ability to take you on a journey and to slowly unfurl the plot of the thread of the album story has always been something that um, speaks to me and is something that I definitely wanted to emulate on this record. What's interesting, you bring up Mazzy Star because they've had something of a resurgence. It's like Fade Into You has been so re-embraced by this new generation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a classic song. I, I mean, her delivery... And she really stands out as like, um, you know, one of the greatest vocalists of our time. And I think there's something just so special uh, about Hope's approach to music and then, then her, her um, songwriting and her storytelling that I'm not surprised that people are picking up, you know, rediscovering her in that way. And, and it reminds me too of like that, that funny viral moment with, um, Fleetwood Mac, I can't remember which song it was, um, uh, that that went viral again recently, and it was like a whole new generation was like, "Who's Fleetwood Mac?" <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, no, I, I I can picture the one you're talking about. Yeah, and, and yeah. Uh, was it was it Dreams? I was gonna say I was I'm like leaning toward Dreams. I think that's the one that it was. It's hard for me because I <laughs> I've always been a fan of their music, so I'm like they're all hits. <laughs> Well, what I like to, uh, first of all, with, with Mazzy Star, I cannot believe Fade Into You will be 30 years old this year. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's Isn't wild. that mind-boggling? But, <laughs> but, but don't you think, too, in a way, if you want to get really metaphysical, if, you know, time is an illusion, why shouldn't something 30 years old feel like it just came out yesterday? Well... Absolutely. And I think this is what is so magical about music, Kelly, is that it, you know, it, it's a it's a Polaroid of a moment in time that stands and lives forever and can be rediscovered by anyone at any moment. And, you know, why why was I so drawn to Mazzy or Fleetwood Mac or Neil Young? It's like, well, sure, I was influenced by, you know, my mom and, and her musical taste, but it does really speak to the timelessness of art and the fact that it stands outside of time. And that's why I think it's so important to, to really um, remember as artists in this moment when our industry is telling us that we need to be TikTok stars and that we, you know, that we need to get to the hook within the first like 20 seconds or we're not going to keep people's attention. And, you know, all the crazy pressure that we feel as artists these days to deliver these quick hooks and, um, you know, to stay on top of social media and everything else. 
to remember that what we're actually creating is something that can stand the test of time when we give ourselves to that act, when we actually surrender to the process and trust the creativity coming through us um, and ground it in something bigger than just like trying to write, you know, a hit, but really like offering ourselves up and our experiences to the world as a gift. Do you think part of it is since we're so single oriented now, you know, single track on Spotify that we've lost out on the album experience, even though you like favorite mm. songs, you know, I think for an artist to really have that full album so that you can immerse the listener in your vision. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, as much as Spotify has, um, sort of forced our hand as artists to be about the single and about these single releases. I do think it's curious that fans are clamoring for vinyl again, and that that's such an important expression. It's, it's certainly providing an outlet and an avenue through which we can really tell the full story as artists. And I have to say, that's one of the things I'm most excited about with my, with my upcoming album is that it'll be a double vinyl just because my songs are long. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm pretty pumped about the idea of releasing this double album into the world and um, really giving giving my fans an opportunity to to go on this full journey with me because it is it's a full story. I, I really took my time expressing a vision and um, different facets of what I was reclaiming in my own life. And I'm excited to be able to offer that full uh, experience to to my fans. See, when I hear a uh, double album, I think of the gatefold cover where you can open it up and, you know, put more words and pictures inside. I mean, 100%. I've already planned it out. I'm, I'm such a visual person as well. And I, I really, um, I think I've been really influenced by my brother, who's a filmmaker in that regard. But being able to tell the visual story along with the music is, is one of the most exciting aspects of being at this point of releasing music into the world um, for me as an artist is being able to complement the music with the visuals and um, yeah, the double vinyl will be it's the whole, I want the whole thing. I want the whole package. I want the insert. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. Cause I'm curious what your approach will be. Cause back in the day, you know, I loved reading the album whether it was, you know, a gatefold or just the back cover. Yeah. And they used to really yeah. fit a lot of info. Like I wanted to read every musician. I wanted to read the dedication. Like, like oh, how yeah. much information do you want to share on that? All of it. Um, you know, while still even giving artistic space for just an image to convey a lot. Um, I think it's part of why uh, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be able to offer that as the double vinyl and gate folded and, you know, with an insert and, and have all the lyrics in there for people, especially because I sing in different languages. I think it's important for, for fans to actually be able to understand and look up what it is that I'm saying. Um, and then, yeah, there's a little section of, of dedications as well. That's, uh, is, is really important to me because you know, here's the thing, Kelly, like being able to make a physical product like this with your music, um, it really is like there's something full circle and like a, a moment of completion about that, like to actually get to hold your record in your hands 
um, because we live in such a digital world now, like it means a lot to artists for us to be able to do that and to have that physical product in our hands. So I, yeah, I sincerely can't wait. I think about it all the time and it, it makes me emotional. <laughs> I, I really I can't wait for, for that day. Absolutely. And what I always thought about vinyl was besides the great sound, there was always like this fragility like if you, you know, you grab the needle too quickly, you could scratch it and you really had to take care of it. Yeah. Isn't that something? It's like it, it not only exists as a ritual to put a record on, you know, on your record player, but it's also you have to treat it with reference. And and I think this is part of the problem of, of where the industry has found itself today is that we've lost the reverence for what it means to be a music maker. And so we're not valuing it the same way. Like we're not, we're not compensating artists for the work that it is to actually create music. And we're missing out on that sense of reverence for an album um, and a work of art. And I think labels are, are, are like anemic because of that. They're missing out on the, on the reverence of having a relationship with their artists and, and watching their artists evolve and grow over time. So, yeah, I think you've touched on something that's, you know, very much at the crux of, of, you know, what needs to kind of return in the music industry is that sense of, of um, reciprocity, respect and reverence. Yeah. Well, speaking of reverence, so on your podcast, Unknowing, you, you've been doing a series called Composting Christianity. <laughs> and I haven't heard all of them yet, but from what I was listening to, you know, it was a, a respectful exploring of what what is the frames of minds, I think, over generations people have had and how have they structured society and kind of like what are the good structures we should keep and what are some other structures we should let go of and maybe reinvent society? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, my podcast is really oriented to, um, you know, I call it, I call it a spirituality for the makers, not the monks, <laughs> because ah. my own explorations over the years have um, taken me down many mystical trails uh, in studying many world religions and, and, you know, practicing meditation and um, studying mystical texts and learning from some of the world's most incredible spiritual teachers. So, um, you know, I've I've been hungering for, I think I was longing for a practical translation of that world into the world of the makers, into the world of those who are, you know, creating something in the world. And on my podcast, I often say, if you're listening to this podcast, then you are an artist, you are a maker, because each of us is making something with every choice we make in our lives. So, you know, your life is your masterpiece. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I was a little bit nervous, Kelly, about exploring that topic of Christianity because, you know, I mean, Christianity is just really problematic <laughs> on so many on so many levels. And yet it's it's, you know, it's one of the biggest monotheistic religions in, in the world and has certainly influenced, um, you know, the foundations of, uh, you know, our own country and the U.S. government. And, um, it, you know, I really felt uh, the hunger, especially among my peers, to have a conversation about how did this 
how did the spiritual framework influence, um, you know, is and how is it on like how is its influence ongoing uh, even now when we consider you know the results of Roe v. Wade this summer being overturned and um, yeah I have a you know one of my spiritual teachers says that you know Christianity unfortunately has a very negative anthropology <laughs> it's like not necessarily the best um, most affirming uh, view of humanity in certain expressions. And yet I do think that um, instead of being against religion or against certain spiritual frames, um, I think that composting is a helpful metaphor because I think each of these spiritual traditions does have something that is vital. I call it, you know, spiritual technology. So, you know, what's the spiritual technology that we need to download from Christianity and then compost everything that isn't um, affirming for, for human and more than human flourishing. So mm -hmm. yeah, that was, it was kind of an intense <laughs> exploration to have for a podcast that's more oriented toward, you know, being a maker and being an artist. But I think it's related because I think as we begin to understand that even these hugely influential spiritual traditions came from human beings, then we can remember that we have the capacity to create alternatives or or to build upon those foundations in a new and different way, hopefully toward greater um, interdependence and interconnection and, um, you know, less division. You know, in our noisy landscape, especially social media where everyone's got an opinion, but really not a lot invested in it, it's really easy to rattle off knee-jerk reactions what did you find it was like to kind of say, hey, I'm going to just take on a big, meaty topic and really go deep with it? Because I think a lot of people, they're not taking the time to fully um, develop their arguments on things. Are you finding with the podcast, you can actually go deeper with an issue and actually maybe even surprise yourself sometimes with what you find. Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, I think this is the other facet of creativity, right? Is that it helps us metabolize, digest, and get clarity on, you know, what do I actually believe about this? Or what is, and what I, I would rather have a conversation about this, for instance, is what does my gut actually tell me about this? So, in being able to take um, the time to explore a topic as big as composting Christianity, um, I was surprised by the response that the audience had. This was like the most popular season I've had. Um, and I think, I think people, like to your point, I think people are really hungering for something more than just, um, you know, the, the reactionary, divisive, uh, polarizing, uh, identity, blame, uh, shaming that is happening all around us all the time. Um, I think there's something beyond the victim blame mindset, that kind of established binary. And I felt like I was able to touch on that through this podcast, um, especially using ecological uh, philosophy as a basis for it, right? Because as, as I'm talking about composting, it's no longer about either or. It's no longer about like, well, you're in this camp or you're in that camp or you belong or you don't or you believe or you don't. Composting is 
a messy mix of everything. And, and it's not a deconstruction because composting is also the way in which new life can be fed and new creative things can be born. Um, so yeah, it, it was a really meaningful exploration. I'm really glad that I did it, um, but I'm still kind of like surprised that I had the guts to. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you hear that term echo chamber, like people saying, oh, a lot of people only go to websites to hear what they already believe. And it seems right. like on, on your podcast, you're open to a variety of guests. Like, do you want to be challenged? You know, instead of us always having someone who agrees 100%, don't you think it helps our, our ideas if we have a little opposition sometime or at least someone that makes us clarify our stance on a subject? Yeah, and I, I mean, again, I think this is why I was drawn to, you know, the description of the podcast, the title of the podcast, Unknowing, is because I think that the creative posture is humble because we don't know. And when we approach somebody or a creative project from that place where we can be regulated even in the midst of not knowing, then we can be surprised by possibility, you know? And I say this on the podcast and I said it earlier, but it's like, you know, there's no way to create something or be transformed except to let go of what we think we know to make room for what could be. And I've definitely tried to have the, that, that kind of stance of humility, of openness, of unknowing with my guests. And it's become, you know, I would describe it as like a life path. It's really how, how I want to live my life. And not because it makes me somehow like, you know, a good person, but because I find that it's, it's the stance that most enables and allows for creativity to surprise me, to unfold in new directions and to take me somewhere that I couldn't have predicted otherwise. Mm -hmm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm thinking this is a Buddhist principle, but the whole idea, you know, attachment is what creates misery. Like when we yeah. let go of an outcome, an expectation, or even let go of wealth and material possessions, we open ourselves up to a lot more contentment. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So I, um, I had the, the privilege of having a conversation with uh, Reverend, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who's a, a Buddhist teacher, about uh, attachment and longing and the creative life on the podcast because it is such a Buddhist principle to let go of attachment and yet you know one of the things I said to her is like well where does desire and longing fit in with that because as an artist I I feel that longing in me you mentioned it earlier in this conversation how like longing is a part of how I create and so is longing bad? Is longing something I should be letting go of? And I like that she framed it. She said, no, longing is yearning, is this instinct, you know, for more. And the way that I describe it is that at least my belief is that life, creativity, and love always flow in the direction of moreness, but not a selfish moreness, not about like me amassing stuff or success or achievements but more of like the moreness that I feel in terms of the expansiveness and my own creative freedom that enables other people to touch on their expansiveness and their creative freedom. 
Um, and so it's no longer for me, Kelly, it's not about like me arriving somewhere or getting to a certain point in the map, whether that's like, you know, um, musical success or, you know, once I sell this many records or if I get this big label deal, then I'm going to be happy, blah, 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 blah. Um, or even spiritually, it's not about arriving at certain states of like enlightenment, but rather like living into this communal co-creative place of freedom in which I realize like I am already living my dream this is this is more than enough do you ever find on your podcast you've had a guest on and you guys have a great conversation and then it's over and that's enough like it doesn't matter if anyone heard it it doesn't matter if you do another podcast it's just you had that one moment and that was satisfying you know unto itself yeah totally i mean there's magic that happens when we slow down and open up to one another and i think that's that's part of the magic of makers because when you think about your experience standing before a painting in a museum or you know your headphones on listening to that one song like what what's happening is you're tuning into presence and to go full circle on our conversation, Kelly, like presence is touching on that which is eternal. And, and so there is a sense of absolute abundance and plenitude there because it's sort of like, wow, like this changed me or I connect with this or I had this conversation with this person and this person changed me. Um, and it leaves you feeling, I mean, at least for me, it, you know, great art or these moments of connection leave me feeling um, humbled and in a state of awe and wonder. You know, how lucky am I to even get to experience this? Like, how grateful am I that, that I get to participate, um, you know, in, in creativity in any way? Well, let's talk about the pros and cons of organized religion and art. Because... <laughs> I run that. That would be a, a very long conversation. Let's let's see if we can <laughs> nip it in the bud for a few minutes. <laughs> but do you kind of miss, you know, way back when? Maybe I'm just thinking of this imaginary time during the Renaissance, when the church would fund the great artists, whether it was, you know, Michelangelo painters and sculptors, and you know, big choral music. Of course, they would fund things that had religious themes, but there is still this idea that this is so important. You know, this art is part of our worship and we want to aim high and we really want to develop skilled artists. Mm -hmm. And do you think we kind of miss some of that? Like when you throw it all away, you think, okay, maybe there was corruption in the church and, you know, these were, you know, very real people but we're still left with these great works of art. So do, sure. do you think that sometimes by combining the religious with the art can create great enduring art? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's two sides to that question. You know, the historical side, which is like, let's notice how uh, the enlightenment and the emphasis of reason and rationality over mystery and belief um, started to influence uh, the church and religion overall to be about 
statements of belief and theology and believing the right thing versus having reverence for mystery and that which can never be known and understood. Um, so there's a reason why the church stopped being uh, the patron of the arts is because it started to be the patron of right thinking and right orthodoxy uh, and more obsessed with rational arguments and proving that they were right as opposed to um, being, uh, you know, the the mother of the patron of the arts, which uh, inevitably the arts are always going to be expressions of mystery, of longing, of beauty, of that which is greater than the rational mind uh, can process. So I think there's a reason why that happened. And then to to your question as well, I think the longing that we experience for uh, transcendence, for for the beyond. Um, I have a friend of mine who's a philosopher, who's one of my favorite writers today. His name is Bayo Akomolafe, Nigerian philosopher. And he says, the wild, and this is the title of his book, The Wilds Beyond Our Fences. So I think there's a reason why, both in spirituality and in creativity, we're longing for the wilds beyond our fences. We have that inherent urge to go beyond that which we know. So it makes sense to me that art is mystical and the mystical is artistic. Well, and then taking it beyond, say, just the Catholic Church, you know, in a, in a specific place and era, but just to think of all world religions in general, mm -hmm. you know, in times past when art had this reverence of, uh, you know, it brought you closer to God or that God inspired artists and maybe yeah. an artist had a more direct connection to the divine. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, again, I think there's a reason for that connection. Um, you know, any artist will tell you, uh, any honest artist, I should say, will tell you that, you know, when I'm sitting, like, for, for instance, when I'm sitting to write a song, uh, I can't force a song to happen. I can only take the posture of least resistance to like open myself up to the possibility of channeling a song. And, you know, artists will describe this to uh, poets or authors. We'll talk about how we often feel like we're making something, but it it's bigger than us. It's like, we feel like the lucky vessels who somehow happen to like manifest a thing, but it's, uh, it's like we're participating in it, but it's it always has that sense of like, you know, something bigger is taking hold. You know, when a song is created, it it feels like your heart's antenna just happened to be tuned into the right station or something. So, I think that there's a reason why that that connection exists between you know the that spiritual religious world and the artistic. I mean, there's amazing three-minute pop songs, but do you think we've lost something by making the three-minute pop song, you know, the model of music for the past <laughs> few generations? Like, do you long yeah. for a day when, you know, you could meander or you could create, you know, a series <laughs> of songs and create a cycle and, you know, write uh -huh. for a, a choir do you, do you think we're just so pinned down today through pop and rock music that that's maybe taken away some of the spirituality? You know, it, it's it's certainly possible. Um, 
And then here's where unknowing is a gift because I have to be honest that when I worked on my record, you know, like I said earlier, I'm like, I feel like I was born in the wrong time. Like I don't really listen to like a lot of like, you know, you know, the top Spotify playlists. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. so because of that, you know, I wrote songs like Bloom, which is one of my singles that was like, literally, I think about it now and I'm like, wow, I have, what was I thinking releasing that as a single? Cause it's five minutes and, you know, five minutes, 50 second song. It's like almost six minutes. <laughs> and nice. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's like almost a full minute that goes by at least 30 seconds, if not more, that goes by before I even start singing. So I think that artists are always going to find the freedom that they need to express what they need to express, regardless of what the institutional or cultural norms are. And that's part of why artists and mystics are similar is because I think the desire for creativity, the desire to express beauty is always going to be more important than than pleasing the system of the status quo. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about Mazzy Star and, you know, this rediscovery, like when a song is so good, it's going to uh-huh. you know, outlive the generations. And, and there was such a, a great example of that with Kate Bush, you know, and people mm. rediscovering, yeah. running up that hill. And yeah. when you look a little deeper, it's not just, you know, this perfectly crafted song, but the subtext, you know, also has a real spiritual quality. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, I mean, for so many in the millennial and Gen Z generations, it's like we don't really fit in the con- in the clean containers of necessarily belonging to one religion or another. I mean, I think we're the largest spiritual but not religious cohort ever uh, in the history of humanity. So, well, actually, I don't know that that's really fair to say history of humanity because like it's prior to these religious, these world religions, there was that as well. But I think in our current time, it's interesting to notice that relationship that, you know, our generations uh, and the ones younger than, than mine are, you know, we're a little bit in the wilderness and and longing for, those portals of spiritual transcendence or portals that can help us connect with meaning um, and purpose and presence. So, you know, the hunger for songs like like Kate Bush's song, like the, the connection that was established in that, I mean, I think it's so much more than it just being like a viral cultural moment. I think it it, it is expressing a deep hunger that we have uh, for depth and for connection. Do you think it was a coincidence that it became popular again through the TV show Stranger Things, which has such a supernatural element to it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I mean, so many things about that show, though, right? Like, I mean, a show that's like, you know, based in the 80s in a time where it was just at the cusp before technology took over, uh, before it became like the central force and uh, you know, foundation for our lives. And so, yeah, I think, you know, you, you started by asking about nostalgia. I think maybe, you know, in this conversation, I'm, I'm realizing that's a nostalgia that I have, you know, I'm, I'm an eighties baby. So there's, there's something about that time. Like I remember a time before, you know, cell phones and, and folks who are younger than me don't. Um, so I think it's important to like, to notice these things like you are. I I think it's more than coincidence. 
Well, I love the 80s, and I always thought it was a really great do-it-yourself decade. Mm-hmm. And if you contrast it to the, the current decade or the current time, you know, we, we have such a chance to put everything online, Instagram. But I, I think what's so ironic about it is just how generic things really are now. Mm-hmm. We're, we're so excessive. There's so much decadence in the fashion you know, when everyone is trying to be more flamboyant and sparkly, you know, it's kind of cool for a while, but when everyone's doing it, but then you think back to the 80s and think, oh, Stevie Nicks seems so cool back then, because not many mm-hmm. people were doing Stevie Nicks. And if they were, right. it wasn't plastered on the, on an internet. Right, right. So, I mean, don't you think that scarcity is scarce nowadays? <laughs> what a great frame and question. <laughs> That's It's fascinating because while to some degree I'd say, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, this world of excess and, you know, bigger, better, more, you know, faster, more success, more money, never enough is actually is a it's it's a paradigm of scarcity right so one of the things that i i talk to like you know folks who take my classes or on the podcast i'll say does the voice of fear show up in your life as never enough or too much like what does fear sound like inside of you and i would say that for the majority of us it sounds like never enough You know, it's never enough. There's never enough views on that, you know, never enough followers on our Instagram accounts, never enough, you know, views on our TikTok. There's not, you know, not enough downloads of the sales of our songs or downloads of or streams on Spotify. And even for people who arrive at these points of, you know, supposed success, you see that like ravenous black hole hunger of like, oh, it's still not enough, even there. So yeah, there is excess everywhere, for sure. But I don't think it has yielded a sense of abundance or plenitude. I think it's only fed the wrong wolf of like, never enough. Um, so I think it's important for us to notice that as artists and as makers, because we have to remind ourselves and remember all the time that the act of creating is the gift. You know, I think about my first producer was Jay Bennett from Wilco which is crazy to, you know, like to have had that, that incredible um, influence of, of, you know, to have him in my life before he sadly passed. And he used to do the stuff like the craziest shit in the studio. Right. And like, he would literally like, he'd wake me up at two in the morning and put me down at the bottom of an elevator shaft, snake down a microphone and just like record my vocals. And I'd ask him why. And he'd be like, because I want to hear what your voice sounds like at two o'clock in the morning. He says, I think in in an elevator shaft. Yeah. At the bottom of an elevator. shaft. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but he was, he was the king. He was the king of experimentation. I mean, I think he's part of what made Wilco Wilco, in my opinion, you know, is because of that experimental approach. And, um, he, he would light all of these candles when I would do, you know, sometimes he'd sit me down to do a guitar and vocal take and do it live. And of course we recorded it on tape, which was crazy. And he would light candles all around me. And I'd like, I'd say to him, Jay, like, why? Like, nobody can see this. So like, why does it matter? And he says, you know, he'd had this like really gruff voice, be like, darling, the process is always a product. 
how you get there is how you arrive, you know? And he said that he believed that people would be able to feel how I felt if I took the time to really be in that space in full presence. And so back to this thing about not enoughness and about scarcity, I think uh, the world is telling us as artists that we need to be manic and be making content across six different social media platforms every day. And I think we need to remember that we are the ones who get to decide how we create and what, how we want to express that creativity. And I really genuinely believe, Kelly, that if we ourselves remember that the gift is the creative act, that just by making something, like we're already in a state of like gratitude, like this is amazing. How lucky am I that I get to do this? That that will translate, that people will be able to hear that. And hopefully we can be a little bit, um, I don't know that hopefully we can bring less anxiety to the world by doing it that way, you know? So what did the acoustics end up being like in the elevator shaft? <laughs> really echoey and, you know, wild and weird, but you know, and, and he would do stuff like that too. He'd put me in like, put me in the stairwell, you know, he, he would like, break a bottle and put it on the snare and like tape a metal chair to the kick and you know always trying to connect little sonic textures to things um so yeah i think that really influenced that that view and even how i create now with david because um you know david and i worked together with jay that's kind of how the three of us first started uh working on on music together but we always approach the songs with that level of reverence and unknowing to say, okay, I think, you know, we think we have an idea of like what the song is going to be, but inevitably when we get into the studio, it always evolves into something beyond what we imagined. Well, there's something about taking yourself out of your regular element that I think can spur creativity. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, isn't that such a metaphor for life, Kelly? Because it's like, you know, I think we really struggle with not knowing and not being in control in life. And yet, what else is adventure except not knowing and not being in control? And what is love if not being out of control and not knowing? You know, so I think the greatest things in our life require us to let go of, of what we think we know. And it seems like a big element of that is trust, as you were saying, you know, oh, let, let's go in the elevator at two in the morning. You really have to trust <laughs> the person to follow after them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, I, I feel that that's like, that's another, I, I don't know, tenant, creative tenant, right? Is that it's co-creative and collaborative and you have to trust each other. And you, you know, letting go of your own ideas is part of that trust. But, you know, even for the music video for Loved Me Like a Weapon, um, which, by the way, talk about DIY, was filmed with four people, um, like with zero budget. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it was just basically me and my friend Logan who co-directed it um, with me. 
And I really had to trust him visually, you know, in, in the telling of the story, particularly around some like vulnerable moments where, you know, I had to cry on cue and really break down in front of the camera. I had to mm -hmm. relinquish my control and trust that, that I could go there and that he could hold that space. And that, you know, he was, he was who I was um, kind of surrendering to behind the lens. So yeah, I think I think all creativity in that way requires that deep trust, especially because there's no expression of art that is done, you know, without that kind of collaborative, you know, uh, group creativity. Well, here's a serious question, and as as much fun as it is to generalize a whole generation, don't want to generalize. <laughs> All of, you know, Gen Z or whatever, you know, we're calling the up and coming generation. But uh -huh. one thing I've noticed is there's kind of a resistance for feedback and direction because I think it's interpreted as, um, you know, a put down or some kind of criticism. Mm. But, you know, good direction isn't criticism. It's, it's to bring out your best. Mm -hmm. So do you find, you know, some of the new generation misinterprets that or, or doesn't realize the need? You know, if you find a really good director or outside person that can see you through a fresh pair of eyes, tell you what your strengths are, maybe help you improve on something and maybe bring out a performance that you didn't even know you had. Don't mm -hmm. you think those would be better off if they open themselves up to that? Well, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to speak for, you know, like you said, I'm not going to speak for a whole generation, but I think that, you know, to your point, your earlier point, trust is required. And, and if somebody's going to offer that feedback, that feedback has to be earned, really. And mm -hmm. I think that part of what is, uh, you know, the, the messiness of this current cultural milieu is that everybody thinks that they have an automatic authority to offer you their thoughts and their opinions <laughs> and right. and and so i you know while i agree with you that receiving really thoughtful um constructive criticism and mentorship and guidance and directorship all of that is is so powerful in in your own development not just as an artist but as a person as a human being like that's that's how we become who we become, right? Um, I do also believe that those voices have to be invited. And, and maybe that's part of what that generation is um, kind of maybe resistant to or rebelling against is just saying, look, like, I can take that feedback, but let me ask for it. Because there's a lot of people in my own life, even Kelly, who feel entitled to offer me their thoughts and their opinions all the goddamn day. And it's like, <laughs> mm -hmm. I... I'm like, I didn't, I don't really need you to mansplain this for me. Like, I don't really need, I didn't ask for your, you know, so, so I think it's a balance, but as you said earlier, so beautifully, yeah. I think it's, it's a balance that hinges on trust and on, you know, that relationship of, right. of trust being established. Now, now, when do we get to change that expression to person-splaining? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question, because it does happen across the board. But, I, I will just say, like, being a woman in, in the music industry, I, I definitely have had a lot of, a lot of uh, mus male musicians, bandmates, and sound guys 
mansplain a lot to me that I just kind of quietly I'm like hmm okay yep thanks oh yeah yeah I've, I've been in the music industry since I was 14 I'm pretty sure I know how to do that <laughs> right because con condescension is never fun that's it that's it well, and again well, I, I think that that goes back to that like you know inherent desire that I have to live you know in unknowing is because you know humility is is just a much more uh playful and creative and pleasant way to live <laughs> right and i think you really hit the nail on the head when you talked about invited rather uninvited feedback right. because it really is the unsolicited feedback and i think a lot of people you know they they want to post something online they're not asking for feedback and it's this weird compulsion everyone has to throw in their opinion just mm -hmm. for the sake of doing it right right that's exactly right you know it, so it sounds like for you you you've been you know fortunate you've worked with great people and 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 you're saying you have to you know earn that feedback and i think part of the thing is the internet makes it so easy to comment without having any skin in the game Exactly. And it's like we 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 really want someone to prove themselves like, oh, maybe record your own album first, you know, before telling other people how to do it. And, and not just in music, but everything out there right now. And it just seems like, you know, because we can't control all that with social media, does maybe some mm -hmm. of that come back to what you're talking about, maybe a Buddhist philosophy? You know, how do we get to this spiritual point where we're no longer affected by other people's opinions we can let that roll off our back mm, is, is that yeah. something you work on yeah. or think about oh definitely and again you know because i feel committed to wanting to like translate uh spiritual technology for makers this exact point is one that we spend a lot of time in i feel like i i, I don't know a single creative that doesn't get um, frazzled by or um, have their confidence knocked out of the wind knocked out of them, um, have their confidence shaken by like the amount of opinions and critiques and feedback that they get, whether it's press or reviews or um, you name it, you know, uh, rejections from labels or whatever. So at least for me, one of the things that I try to practice is coming into an awareness of my own non-contingent worth, which is my way of saying, like remembering that my worth is, is not contingent on, is not reliant upon, does not shift with any outcome, whether it's people liking me or people not liking me, you know, record selling or not. I have to get, I have to get in touch with that, like deepest part of my own rootedness that remembers that like, I am who I am and, I um, I will like this person that I'm becoming regardless of success or failure. You know, it's that concept in, in spirituality of equanimity, which is, can I, can I keep the same amount of distance between my own sense of self and success or failure? Um, and it is a practice, Kelly. I mean, it's something that I think I have to do all the time every day is to come back and remember and root down into that that sense of um, non-contingent worth. Wow. Well, before we head into our, our wrap up, I, I've got a couple questions because I heard you say classes. 
I want to <laughs> explore that in our final heap here. But before we do, uh, where can people find you online and, and learn all about you? Yeah, um, well, you know, besides the, the array of regular social media outlets, <laughs> which um, I'm probably most active on Instagram, like I'm like the millennial that I am. Um, but I also, I do teach classes on, on creativity. Um, you know, I, again, in my, in my effort to try to translate spiritual technology for the makers, I decided to connect, um, some of those teachings to seasonal courses and help, you know, artists, creatives, or, you know, doesn't even matter what you do for a vocation, but help human beings kind of remember, uh, a more cyclical approach to how they view their life, their creativity, and their relationships. So I offer seasonal courses. Um, there's a womb course in winter, woo in the spring, uh, wield in the summer, and wean in the fall. And the premise of each of those courses is that each season uh, has a particular invitation for us creatively. So learning how to stay um, agile and flexible in each of those invitations, I think, is part of what can make us more grounded uh <laughs> happy creatives <laughs> so those classes are available online you can find them on my website at briefstoner.com and then of course the podcast unknowing is available wherever you get your podcasts well just hearing you talk i bet you're a great teacher uh I, i'm curious these are online so do people like log on and then you teach them live Yes, yeah, so they are, they're kind of a self-paced component that I unlock every week. So there's reflections and spirit, you know, suggested uh, practices uh, and projects every week. But then once a week, we all hop on a Zoom call together. And there is a portion where I kind of interact with the students and um, we kind of co-create that experience together. And I think that's important because there's something about joining together even with people that don't live in your proximate environment um but that are wrestling through similar questions as you are that helps you feel less alone in the world and i even mm -hmm. feel fed by it kelly like i'm deeply nourished by you know the students that participate in these courses so i you know i don't call myself a teacher i mostly say like okay yes i teach classes but what i do is i, I feel like i'm a creative companion you know like i'm i'm a student of the past i'm like walking right, right alongside of you doing this stuff um so yeah uh, so of these people so you're saying these are mostly people who identify as creatives or are involved in some kind of art discipline a lot of them yeah but i think because you know on my podcast i emphasize that like you know regardless of what you do as a vocation you are a creative um, mm -hmm. I've, I've had folks uh, participate who are, you know, like a plumber and, you know, like this, they're, they're just, they're wanting to touch into how they can um, tap into their, their most creative and fulfilled life, even, even as an accountant or as a plumber. So it really isn't so much about what you do, but how you want to live your life, how you want to move through your life um, that we explore. Do you think part of it is because we've been so conditioned to only think of singers and actors and painters as creative, that we need to get back into touch about the creative aspects of any occupation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think this is part of what's emerging in our time, Kelly, is that we're all of us more than one thing. Uh, 
I think the era of being able to slap one singular identity label of a vocation on somebody, I, I think that era is, is dying. It's almost gone. Because even amongst people who are really successful in one field, you, you see that there's this hunger to express themselves across other mediums and um, in other ways. And uh, I think we're all in that uh, remembrance together of being like, you know what? Yeah, I am more than one thing. I am a mother and I'm a lover. I'm an academic and I'm a creative. Um, I make music and I paint and I write. And so thinking in more of these ecological uh, web-like ways, as opposed to just like one singular identity, I think is, um, it's a more holistic way to view ourselves but it also frees us to to be more fluid and not take ourselves so seriously at least mm -hmm. for me it does you know I find it it's really nice to be able to um have all these different outlets because then it means that I can you know not get overly stuck or identified in one well here's one last uh simple question but a biggie so give give me your your heartfelt response, <laughs> and I hope this may is in part inspired by what you're saying about your class and and your podcast. But you know, when we think of being spiritual or being closer to God, we think of meditation, prayer, mm -hmm. going to church, you know, doing good deeds, and you know, being loving. But don't you think when it gets down to it? we are closest to God or spirituality when we're creating something. Well, I, I couldn't have summarized it more beautifully, but that is exactly, that's the premise of the book I'm working on right now. It's the premise of my podcast. And it really is probably my core belief, Kelly, is that, you know, that connection to whatever you want to describe as the divine or spirit or life force is most actively integrated and expressed and manifested through creativity. And I'm not talking about craftiness or as you said, even about artistry. It's about being willing to participate in critiquing the bad or what hasn't worked by creating the better and something new in this world. And that is what I wanna dedicate my whole heart and life to. And that's what I hope I'm doing. Well, Brie, it sounds like you have a mission that that transcends music. <laughs> it transcends your podcast, your class. It sounds like you really just have this thread that is going to run through your life no matter what you do. Well, I certainly, you know, in my better moments, I do feel held by that thread like a web and I feel like we're all connected to it. So thank you for all that you're doing and thank you for this podcast and for having me on today. Absolutely. And I'm just going to give you one final plug so they remember I have been talking to Brie Stoner. The latest single is Loved Me Like a Weapon. I urge everyone to go to YouTube and watch the video. It is really heartfelt and the visuals match the music in such a creative way. And, uh, you know, I'm going to go back and I hope other people do and listen to your podcast, Unknowing. I think if they just put Unknowing Podcast, Bree Stoner, they can find that with your very compelling topic, Composting Christianity. Hey, I love what you're doing and I really hope we get a chance to talk again. 
Thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for all you're doing in the world too. This has been the Rising Star Podcast with your host, Kelly Hughes. 